Scalzi, I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, what you just saw was a recreation of probably one of the most famous tests in um, general psychology. Uh, it's called the marshmallow test. In the 1960s in Stanford's being a nursery, uh, they set a group of kids in a room and the premise was exactly what you witnessed. And the kids were told if they were willing to wait, that when the, kind of the instructor returned, that they would get another treat. And uh, it was one of these fascinating studies that I, I believe had we been able to watch it uh, in the 60s, we'd have probably witnessed that, right? I mean, that was so adorable, watching every one of those kids trying to figure out, can I wait, especially the twins that were just kind of resonating with uh, kind of this pattern of shaking back and forth because they just wanted it. Um, and then the little girl who's like, I don't care. I want this marshmallow right now. I don't need you to leave the room. I'll go ahead and eat it, right? What was fascinating about that study, though, is that that study has, has become since, since the 60s, one of the most prolifically cited um, studies in psychology, specifically because what it revealed about humanity was uh, just this challenge of self-control and patience. In fact, what was really profound about the experiment wasn't what happened in the moment, which was probably very easily predictable um, and very much just like that. What was found was over the course of the decades, they continued to follow a third of the 200 kids that they ran this experiment on. And what they found over the decades that passed was that the kids that were called the delayed eaters, um, generally overall compared to the other ones who were the uh, instant gratifiers, okay, um, that over the course of decades, the high delayers um, outcompeted, they outscored, and they were overall more successful in life than the instant gratifiers. That the ones who waited, even as small toddlers, tended to correlate with higher SAT scores. They tended to have more successful jobs making more money. And they were, in fact, even healthier and smaller. Like had a lower BMI, body mass index, decades later. That was what was truly profound about the study, was not this one snapshot, but the way that this snapshot could fold in to a, a, an approach and rhythm in life that had implications. In fact, of all the different areas, when you kind of segment human psychology and the different factors, um, the IQ is considered to be a, a pretty successful general indicator of someone's success, right? IQ is used pretty, um, pretty extensively. Socioeconomic status, what kind of family you grew up in, the, the kind of the income level, the education level, tends to be on uh, kind of reliable predictor of that child's future financial and educational status. But what's interesting is that IQ and socioeconomics have huge, huge influence in a kid's life, but what was, what's been found over the last 40 years is that self-control and patience has the same level of impact as IQ, right? That when you really kind of take a step back, something as what's typically held as genetic and as predetermined as an IQ that someone's willingness to wait has just as much impact as the brain they have in the head or the type of family and the family dynamics that they grew up in. And that's what the marshmallow, the marshmallow test revealed. It revealed in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s in the follow-up what Solomon said over 3,000 years ago to his son when he was preparing him to be king. That son, of all things that matter, your ability to practice patience and self-control makes all the difference. That while Stanford may have 
quantified it with a very adorable test, God had already begun to impress it upon his people 3,000 years ago through the wisdom of a father to a son. Written in a proverb that we're going to spend time unpacking on the importance of something as simple as patience. The book of Proverbs is uh, written by primarily one author, although there are additional contributors that over the years would add to it. King Solomon was its primary author, and King Solomon lived about 3,000 years ago and is considered to be one of the wisest men who have ever lived. He was so wise, in fact, that people would travel from all around the world to spend time listening to him, learning from him, and taking in, absorbing his insights that he had in life. And the book of Proverbs was primarily written as a parenting guide. And and it is loaded with these simple one-line or two-line statements that would have been repeated frequently over his children so that they would have internalized the wisdom and the lesson. And in many ways, it wasn't just a parenting guide, it was also a preparation guide for becoming a king, a ruler, an influencer, a leader. This, This book was written for Solomon to pass on to his future bloodlines, the ones who would continue to rule and reign in Israel at the time on how to be a king that was a good king. And I think through looking at Proverbs 16.32 today, what we're going to find is that we can find how we can foster patience in our own lives. That you and I can actually foster this incredibly significant and important trait by both nurturing it in our lives and realizing the nature of patience itself. And so what I want us to do is unpack this simple proverb, maybe even start you on a quest to to memorize it or to teach it to your kid, because if you're like me, after hearing those stats, you're probably a little concerned that your kid might be like the little girl who didn't wait for the instructor to leave the room and just ate it right away. You're like, oh my goodness, my kid's going to have a low SAT score. This is really bad, right? When I remember coming across this literature and then becoming a parent, every time my daughter eats something, when I try to pose the marshmallow test, I'm like, I'm failing. This is hard, right? I mean, so here's the encouragement from this wisdom today. You and I can actually begin to foster patience. So if you have the Encounter Church app, go ahead and click on it. Um, You can click on sermon notes. This will be already preloaded for you. And you just kind of follow along through the the process. But Proverbs 16.32 says this. It'll be on the screen um, if you are having trouble with the app or you don't have a Bible with you. It says, better a patient person than a warrior. One with self-control than one who takes a city. I'm going to read it again because it's so short, but it's so loaded. Better a patient person than a warrior. One with self-control than one who takes a city. It's like better a patient person than even a conqueror. Which is significant because uh, it's significant when you realize that this is Solomon speaking to his sons, his daughters, training and preparing them. But their grandfather, their grandfather is King David, who was and is considered to be one of Israel's greatest kings ever. And the reason he's one of the greatest kings ever isn't just because of his heart for God, but because King David was Jack Bauer and like you, all the other great moments and movie scenes collapse into one. David is this ultimate warrior. Like David's a guy who's like, oh, how many of them? Oh, there's, there, sir, there's about 57 of them and we don't have a weapon. Hmm, we're in a good place. And then he attacks them. Like David's this guy who conquers and defeats. I mean, the first time we hear about David in battle, he's walking out as a teenager fighting one of the greatest warriors of the day named Goliath. 
David is the quintessential warrior. He's the guy that you want on your side when you step into a battle. And so they would have heard these stories about their granddad and how he was a conqueror, how he was a warrior, the way he took cities. And in fact, took cities in such a way that he helped to establish this time period of peace where Israel was the big, big dog in that region of the world. And yet, in the midst of that, King Solomon says, better a patient man, patient person, than a warrior. One who has self-control over one who takes a city. And their mind would have instantly went to their grandfather, the greatest warrior, the one who took the cities. And yet, Solomon's saying, there's an even better person than your granddad. There's a better way than his way. What you see in the midst of this is, first of all, just the nurture of patience, right? The very fact that Solomon is saying this to his children is a reminder to you and I. It's implicit in the proverb itself that patience can be fostered. Because for many of us, we we hear patience and maybe over the last two weeks of talking through grit and humility, you were swayed and said, okay, maybe I can develop more grit or okay, maybe I can become more humble so that I can be the humblest person in the room. Right? Maybe I can take those steps, but patience, I just don't think I can do that. I don't think I'm a patient person. I know patient people, I'm just not one of them. And the fact that Solomon is saying this to his children is because it can be fostered. Remember that Solomon, and we won't get into this too much, we'll we'll talk about this later, but Solomon is the son. He's he's alive because of his father's impatience and lack of self-control. Like he was born out of King David having an affair with Bathsheba. He's like, "No, no son, this is important. Our family bloodline has been impacted by lack of self-control. It destroyed parts of our family. This is heavy. And you have a choice. You can foster it. You can be a better man than even your grandfather was. You have a choice. And that you and I can foster patience in our life. It's not a personality trait that some people have and others don't. Practice is a discipline that anyone, I mean patience is a discipline that anyone can practice. Period. It's not a personality trait. It's a discipline to be practiced. And that you notice, if if you were to kind of dig in, that this wasn't originally written in English, right? Solomon is a Jewish king He's living 3,000 years ago. They would have spoke Hebrew at the time. And if you were to unpack and spend time looking up each one of the the original words that would have been the source of the translation in English that we read today, what you would have found, and even just reading it on the English level, you see that there seems to be this idea of tension that's just en route in patience, right? He says the analogy he uses when he compares patience, he compares it to being a warrior and he compares it to taking a city. Two things that would have been instantly recognizable as conflict-oriented and very much tense moments. See, for many of us, I've heard people say um, after I became a Christian um, that, oh, you shouldn't pray for patience because if you do, it'll, your life will just be hard or things will be difficult. 
And I think what it does is when people say that, it betrays this idea that you can have patience without the frustrating moments. That patience is only found in this tense. Patience is only found in the tension of conflict. You can't be patient in an environment where patience isn't needed. That's why he pulls up this imagery of warriors and people who take cities. He's just like, look, patience is only found in those moments. We only have an opportunity to practice patience when the circumstances are frustrating and beyond our control. And he, he actually uses this very interesting phrase that I think kind of takes it a little bit deeper, where it says, better a patient person. Um, if you, you dig into the, the phrasing in Hebrew, Patient person is actually not the literal phrasing. Um, the literal phrasing um, is the idea of the phrasing is slow to anger. But what's even more fascinating than that is the literal, like the actual word is a Jewish idiom. It's, it's a, like a, a way of saying slow to anger called a long nose. The, the literal Hebrew is better a long nose. Better a long nose than a warrior. And you're like, long nose? That's weird. But actually, it's, it's really quite profound. Um, you've all experienced it. I experienced it growing up. Some of you probably experienced it this morning with your spouse. The Jewish idea of long nose, slow to anger. Have you ever gotten frustrated with someone or ever frustrated someone? This is what happens, right? You see them go. And they, keep, they breathe in. And, and as a child, I learned to navigate my mom's lung capacity because the longer, as long as she was still breathing in, I was safe. But the moment she was like, I was like, oh, I'm in trouble. I better start running. My brother's slower. Throw him down on the ground. Right? Because it was at that moment I realized I've reached her threshold. And that was the Jewish idea of slow to anger. It was this idea of having an incredibly long nose that meant you could keep breathing in. Because for the Jewish mindset, the, the longer the nose, the deeper the breath you could draw. And so it was this... And the idea that a patient person was someone that could keep breathing in long after most people had already exhaled. That you could just keep sucking in air, you could keep taking it, taking it, drawing it in, drawing it in, drawing it in. That, that was the idea of a long nose. And it's like better to have a long nose than to be a warrior. Because I think embedded in that imagery of a long nose is probably the most helpful part of understanding how to nurture patience in our life. You see, the irony of patience, the irony of patience is that oftentimes impatience comes from applying the right action to the wrong thing. Let me unpack that. Patience, right? When we, when, we, when we get impatient with someone, typically at the root of it is a desire to control, right? You're in the grocery store. Child's not listening to you. They're not doing what you say. You start to breathe in, breathe in, breathe in. They're not listening. You've lost control. And then what happens? You lose control. And you get impatient. See, patience, when we get impatient, I think it's just we've got it backwards. We're trying to control the uncontrollable, 
And in process of trying to control the uncontrollable, we lose control of the one thing that we have control over, ourselves. We're trying to control something we have no control over. The one thing we have control over is ourselves. And what happens when we get impatient? We try to, Im to impose control on the wrong thing. Instead of imposing it on ourselves and saying, let's keep it together. Let's keep breathing in. We say, no, I'm going to make them or this circumstance. I'm going to control it. And if you've lived longer than a day, you and I have realized that you can't control people and you can't control circumstances. And oftentimes, the source of our impatience is us applying the wrong action, the right action to the wrong person or circumstance. And that's what it means to be long-nosed is that the focus, the focus of a patient person is not trying to control the person on the other side of that nose. It's trying to control how much breath keeps coming into it. So you know what? I, I can't control this three-year-old. I'm their parent. I can't control my spouse. I'm married to them. But what I do have control is how much I can keep taking, that I can keep breathing in, that I can hold it inside and not lash out at them. Because patience is an incredibly powerful thing. And when we lose our patience, sometimes it can impact someone's life in a way that forever changes it. Some of us still bear the weight and the burden of our parents losing impatience with us. Or a father who was never patient and would listen. Impatience destroys communication and breaks down relationships. In uh, 1968 to 1972, America had this incredibly intense period of our nation's history where over 200 airplanes were hijacked in a four-year period. Now, kind of living in the 2000s, when we think about terrorisms and plane, uh, there's really not too many hijackings that stand out. But from the 60, late 60s and early 70s, hijacking was almost a weekly occurrence. There was one day, in fact, during that same period where five, hi five hijackings happened in the exact same day. One of the hijacking incidents that, um, that really kind of defined that whole period of time and that really set the F FBI into a completely different path happened in the 70s with a pilot named Brent Downs. Brent Downs was five foot eight, which meant at the time he was not tall enough to qualify for flying commercial airlines. Because his passion was being a pilot, um, he, he would fly for a small, uh, small aviation company called Big Brother. And, but because he had a wife, a small child, and a wife who, that wife was pregnant, in fact, getting ready to give birth to his second child, uh, the financial pressures were, were growing. So he was taking additional flights. And in the midst of taking additional flights on chartering them, he was also trying to go to school to get his license for real estate. Because just being a pilot didn't pay enough at that time for small airlines for him to be able to take care of his family. So he gets a call, and there's a chartered flight and he has to be at the airport at midnight uh, to prep for a 2 a.m. charter flight um, to the south. And so he's in Nashville, and he's prepping the plane. A black Lincoln rolls out, a Cadillac, and, uh, and three individuals walk out, and he, he asks for credentials because he has to verify whether or not they're going to be the ones that are actually taking this charter flight. And the guy pulls out a gun, and the pilot says, all right, 
that'll do. And they load on the airplane. He says, take off. The pilot, Brent Downs, gets on the radio and, um, and communicates um, a, a secret of code that is a trigger word for the airlines, for the traffic controller to recognize this is a hijacking underway. And so he communicates uh, the panic kind of emergency code. The tower repeats the code back to confirm it. He confirms it. And out of nowhere, police are dispatched. And they arrive uh, as the plane is beginning to take off. And as the plane is starting to lift, away, lift up, uh, the two cop cars catch up to the plane as it's gone into the air. And uh, they get up in the air. The, the hijacker claims to have a bomb. He has a gun. There's a distraught woman and a confused man with him. Uh, they get up in the air and he says, where am I flying to? And he says, well, fly me to Jamaica. Fly me to, and he, as he's listing all of these tropical island destinations, the pilots, we don't have enough fuel for that. Uh, this plane doesn't have the range for that. Um, and he says, I can get you, to, I can get you to, the, to the Bahamas, to Freeport. And he says, okay, take me there. He said, but the only challenge is we don't have enough fuel to get the Freeport. I have to reload, refuel in Jacksonville. And so the, the man agrees. The Brent calls it over to the air traffic controller, again, emphasizing that this is a hijacking and that I need fuel trucks waiting for me in a back corner. I need to make sure this is fast because I've got to get back up into the air. Uh, the FBI is dispatched because this is now crossed over state lines from Tennessee and now going into Florida. So this is now an FBI jurisdiction thing. The FBI is waiting at the airport as the plane lands, taxis to the back of the area, and as the pilot stops the plane and begins to shut off the engines for the refuel, there's no refuel truck. And at that point, the, the agitated hijacker starts to scream at the pilot, where's my refuel? And Brent begins to, to call to the, the traffic controller, where's our refuel truck? And they say, there's no refuel truck coming. And, um, and the FBI swoop in, stationed around the airplane, and the hijacker is getting increasingly more and more frustrated. He finally negotiates. Uh, Co-pilot steps off uh, and says, look, he's let me go to tell you he's going to kill people if you don't refuel this plane. You've got to refuel it. The FBI agents take the co-pilot, do not question him, and put him in the back of the car. Hijacker getting increasingly nervous, even releases someone else without asking, being asked to do it. To make the point, you have to refuel this plane, I have a bomb. But the FBI agents, again, grab him, don't question him, shove him in the back of the car. The agent in charge, O'Connolly, decides that um, this is not, this plane's not going anywhere. And in the midst of his frustration, blocks the airplane, walks up to the tire, begins to fire rounds at it. If you've ever been around an airplane tire, those things are incredibly thick. They're not made to be shot out with a typical gun. And so he shoots at the, the, the tire twice and it doesn't blow, it just ricochets the bullet. And in the midst of that, O'Connor is getting more and more frustrated. I can't believe it. So he crawls around to the front of the plane, peeks through the cockpit, and two bullets are fired. And at that point, he radios to his sniper, shoot the plane, take it out. And in the midst of the sniper firing at the engine to disable it, gunshots are heard. And at the end of the day, 
he peeps back in and he finds that there are three people remaining in the cockpit and they're all dead. That within 10 minutes of that plane touching down, three people's lives had already been taken. Now the reason that case changed everything was because the family of Brent Downs sued the FBI. And it went all the way up to the Supreme Court and this is what the, the court found. That in this particular incident, when they awarded this suit to the family, that it was both the organizational policies uh, and the mistake of not questioning the people who'd come out of the plane who actually knew what was happening, and the individual shortcomings. O'Connor's decision to discontinue negotiations and his choice of forcible assault when negotiations were proceeding reasonably that had an immediate and harmful impact on the situation of the course of three people dying in 10 minutes of touching on ground. And this was the, the court's statement. The court indicated that the preferred alternative was not to intervene forcefully, that what O'Connor and his team should have done was to continue to play out the waiting game. The impatience had taken the lives of these three people. Impatience can destroy relationships. They can shut down communication. And that what can seem like a very insignificant moment can have ripple effects where you communicate to the person beside you that you love, that I don't care about what you're going through. That patience is an incredibly powerful, powerful thing to have and to live with. And I love the phrasing of the waiting game. So here's how I want to encourage you and challenge you to step out in this this week, to play the waiting game. Because patience is a discipline you get stronger in as you practice. And so you and I can play the waiting game in small, insignificant moments so that we are strong enough to handle and to, to navigate the significant moments where patience is needed. When you sit down with your spouse and your finances are in ruin, that's not the moment to start figuring out patience. When you're arguing about your schedules and how you're not spending enough time with each other, that's not the moment to try to try out patience. But it's a muscle that can be strengthened. And so this week, just give you a, a bunch of different things that I want to encourage you to, to try. This is something I do. If you ever see me in a grocery store, things will start to make sense because I practice these disciplines called the waiting game. One is traffic. You want to discover how impatient you are? Get in a car and drive around other human beings. That typically reveals your level of patience. And so this week, in between an appointment, leave early, give yourself a buffer of time, and intentionally drive in one lane without switching lanes the entire way. Put yourself in the slow lane the entire time. And do not give yourself permission to get out of it. And you say, that's ridiculous. That's frustrating. Yes, that is an opportunity to grow in patience. Maybe it's for you at a grocery store this week. And you walk up and you do what I do. You're like an algorithm. You didn't even know your brain could run an algorithm. And it's like you walk up to and all of a sudden your eyes are like beep, beep, beep. And they're scanning every single register. And you're computing things that are incredible. You're like, his average rate of checkout speed is 3.6 items per second. Hers is 2.5%. And you're doing all this advanced computation. And you're like, boom, fastest, most greatest opportunity to get out of here. And so you get in that line, right? 
And then if you're really intense, I'm not saying I do this, but I might know somebody who does, where then you have the like ghost shopper in the other line. You like, okay, if I stood in that line, where would I be? Oh, man, I'd be at the register right now. I still got, I made a bad decision. Do you, do you have that moment where you like literally you're standing in line and you have projected these phantom images of yourself in other lines? And you're like, version number three is already out the door right now. Nope, version two is still right here. Version one, they're at Starbucks grabbing a drink because they had that much free time. And you just get angry because it's patience is about applying control to the one thing you can control. And so the way we get stronger in patience is to practice that self-control. So I'm going to put myself in the slowest line. My brain's already, I already know which one's the slowest line because I've already figured out which one's the fastest. So put yourself in the slowest line and wait. And it's going to feel uncomfortable. And you're going to feel frustrated. And in that moment, you say, I am practicing. I am getting stronger and patience. Maybe you have a family trip coming up soon, and the um, Geneva Convention actually recently ruled that this is a form of torture, so uh, it's justifiable whatever happens, but the question, are we there yet? Right? I remember last year taking a 15-hour trip, and we're not even out of Dedham, and my daughter's like, are we there yet? And I'm like, oh, honey child, you have no idea. (laughs) This is a two-day journey. We hadn't even made it out of town limits, right? And, but we've all been in those cars where are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? And about the 75th time of are we there yet, something breaks on the inside typically, right? And you just start to twitch. And, and like Geneva Convention has ruled that that's actually a form of torture. You can get national secrets out of people if you ask are we there yet enough? But those moments, those moments are incredible moments to practice patience. If you say, I'm going to answer the question every time it's asked. And by the end of the strive, I may need to lock every liquor cabinet I see because I'm not going to be able to hold it together. But I'm going to answer every single time they ask, are we there yet? And it's not about them. It's about me practicing self-control and fostering patience and continuing to work it. Because in those silly moments, we get strong enough to handle those significant moments where it's a difficult conflict with a very difficult person. Or it's our spouse, or it's our child, or it's our parent, or it's someone we're dating, or it's, if we're single, the patience of waiting for who we're going to marry. That those moments matter. And the very nature, right? The the reason we nurture patience is because the nature of patience. When it says long nose, slow to anger, it's the first time it's ever referred to as human. A human trait. All Jewish history before, every time that phrase is used, it's speaking about God. Because patience is not something that leads to success. Patience reflects the very best of what God God designed us to be. That patience is rooted in His very nature. And I don't know about you, but I'm so glad that God is patient with me. 
I'm so glad that God has an incredibly long nose that continues to breathe in when I would have probably exhaled a long time on me. Or the frustration or the disappointment or the way that I'm just so stubborn in my ways. I am so grateful that God is slow to anger. That this idea of patience is worth nurturing in our life because the very nature of patience itself is rooted in God's character. And that when we practice and nurture patience, we're fostering something in our lives that can have the power to transform relationships. That patience, patience is at the very heart of Christianity, of a God who looked at a broken, rebellious people and said, I'm going to wait, I'm going to love, I'm going to pursue, I'm going to put up with you. Because I care about you, I love you. And that for some of us in the midst of our relationships right now, or even in our job place, or maybe even our stage or season of life, that maybe you're waiting on a dream or a hope that doesn't look like it's going to come through. You've had this lifelong dream to do this one thing, and now you're not sure it's going to happen. Or maybe you're, you're single, and you, you're tired of watching all your other friends get married, and you're just increasingly frustrated. Like, when's it going to happen for me? Or when your kid is stepping into this awkward season of being called a teenager and pressing the limits, and you know how you respond makes a difference, but you keep losing control. That patience has the power to transform your relationships. It has the power to sustain you in your suffering. Because patience at the end of the day is about applying control to the one thing we have control of in the midst of the thing or the person we don't. And that every time we take and stand in the long line at a grocery store or when we work from a slow Wi-Fi on purpose, right? Or when we hear, are we there yet? And we simply respond, no. Google Maps says 17 hours and 37 minutes. Every time we do that, it's an opportunity to grow in a character trait that God intended us to have because it reflects who He is. And that it has the power, like Solomon said to his child, it's better to be patient than it is to be the president. It's better to be patient than have all of those things in your life come to fruition. That patience is stronger and greater than even the most powerful army on earth. That being able to control yourself has a greater impact on your life than getting control over all the things that you can't. And that this week, as you step into whatever those moments of potential impatience, where or who can you practice patience with this week? Where can you foster it? And imagine, what would your house look like? What would your workspace look like if you started focusing on controlling yourself and not your circumstances? Not your child, 
Not your significant other. Not your co-workers. But yourself. And that you led you well. And that in doing so, you fostered life and relationship all around you. Let's pray.